day. It's great to see all of you here. Unfortunately, you know, the weather's not the best, and that may have kept a few people home, but I trust that we have plenty of our family online, and so uh, greetings to all of you out there, too, wherever you are. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews today, and this might not seem to be the place to go for a Mother's Day message, and I guess it's not really a Mother's Day message, but um, it's a message for all of us. So you know, uh, of course, today is Mother's Day, and we are so grateful for our mothers. I'm so grateful for the mother that's in my house. I'm grateful. My, my mother has gone to be with the Lord, um, you know, gosh, 23 years ago. Wow. I can't believe it's And then, uh, but I am blessed to have a wonderful mother-in-law who I love like my own mother, who, by joke with Gloria, loves me better than her own biological son. So, so I hope he's not listening. Um, but yes, you know, just blessed by mothers in my life. And um, so praise the Lord for our mothers. And, you know, what's interesting about this week is there's actually quite a few things that were celebrated this week. You know, as you know, Cinco de Mayo was celebrated around Chicago on May 5th. And, um, you know, that's the Mexican celebration of when they fought off a French invasion back in 1862 on the 5th of May. But for Koreans, like myself, there was another national holiday that was celebrated this past week, and that's Children's Day. And that was also on May 5th. That's our Cinco de Mayo, I guess you could say. And uh, so, you know, Korea's Children's Day, in tandem with Mother's Day, uh, but also, you know, this week my daughter made a decision to, uh, oh, thank you. Maybe people on, online couldn't hear me at all. <laughs> so, and then my daughter this past, this past weekend made a decision to go to the University of Illinois for college in the fall. But all these things have provoked me to consider what, is, what does the Lord have to say to us to both Abigail and to Gloria um, during this week of Children's Day and Mother's Day uh, with college decisions. So I guess you could say that this message from God is for Gloria. It's for Abigail in the back room. But, but you know, it's really for all of us. Because we're all parents. We're all children of somebody we all have loved ones in our lives who have poured themselves into us, and we have poured ourselves into them. And I find it interesting that there, I just, as I thought about Mother's Day and, and Children's Day, that th there have been times when I've heard Gloria, you know, pouring back into her mother to remind her of, like, what are the really important things in life? Because sometimes, even with our many, you know, as our age uh, grows and we, we, go through seasons where we forget what is the purpose of our life here and so I mean that's always encouraging too to see that we have the opportunity to bless our parents as well so but let's all listen in to what the Lord has to say to us today so let me begin with the word of prayer Lord we are trusting that this is your word 
that you're giving to us today. And certainly we are reading from your inspired word. And we're asking you to speak through that too. And speak to us in a way that lets us not just hear words on a page, but to hear your voice as you speak to the innermost parts of our heart and lives. Because God, we didn't come here because we had nothing better to do. We came here to meet with you and to meet with your people. So Lord, don't let us leave disappointed. We want to meet with you. And nothing else is going to do. Lord, thank you for loving us, for preserving your word for us so that we would have it for ourselves. And God, thank you for giving us the mind and the heart to receive it today. And we pray these things for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews 12. If you've got your phone, then please turn it on. You know, usually they tell you to turn your phones off in gatherings, but I'll ask you to turn it on and find Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I'm mostly going to be in the English Standard Version. And here's what it reads. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know, normally, you know, they tell you in seminary or Bible college when you're learning how to preach, don't give the punchline away right at the beginning. But I'm going to do that just so that it frames for us where are we going. And it's this idea. It's that the race of life is run successfully by those whose thoughts and actions converge upon the prize at the finish line. The race of life is run successfully by those whose thoughts and actions converge upon the prize at the finish line. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. The NASB, the New American Standard, says encumbrance. The NIV says anything that hinders. Let's lay it aside. And sin, which clings so easily or so entangles or hinders us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews begins the previous chapter by defining faith for us in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. And he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old, the ancients, received their commendation, their approval, their prize, you could say. And then the definition of faith is illustrated throughout the remainder of the chapter in what is often called by Christians the Hall of Faith. 
and our church fathers are listed in there. And it's basically to tell us what is it about them that demonstrates their faith. Their faith. It's not just that they had a feeling or a certain mindset, a belief system, an ideology, but what do we see in their life? What did they do? What actions converged upon their convictions, their faith? So that we could say, these are people who belong in the Hall of Faith. And so let's consider just one of these illustrious inductees into the Hall of Faith. One of my favorites is Moses. And he probably would have been one of the favorites among the Jews. Such an important, important prophet in the Old Testament. He was born, and you know, his story goes all the way back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And he was born in a time of great turmoil, oppression, persecution for God's people. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. Second, because God had blessed his people with fruitfulness, that is, they had great you know, population growth, expansion, because they grew so much, the Pharaoh instituted a genocidal population control. He decided that male babies must be killed. But God saved Moses' life, and he was essentially adopted into the Pharaoh's household. But here's what's forever spoken of Moses in the Hall of Faith. Let me read it to you. If you want to follow along, it's in chapter 11, verse 23 to 28. It says, by faith, it starts with, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, So first it starts with Moses' parents' faith. He was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of of Egypt. He was fixating on his prize. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. How would you like to have something like that written? about you. That's the summary statement about your life. By faith. See, these heroes in the hall of faith are examples to us because they chose to seek God's approval above all other approvals. That's why they're in the hall of faith. Like Moses, they looked toward a greater reward than what the world offered. Than what anyone could offer, but only God could offer. Verse 26, it said that he considered the reproach, the disgrace, the shame of Christ greater wealth than the treasure, the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
And I wonder, for us, how often do we get distracted by the offerings of this world that say, I've got a reward for you. I've got a prize for you. Now, isn't this fine? Isn't this beautiful? Doesn't it sparkle and glitter? Isn't it shiny? And we get distracted and we get fooled. We are deceived into believing that that is our final reward. And what might that reward be? Maybe we think, if I just had more of something, if I just had better of something, if I had higher of something, higher wage, higher grades, what is it that we get fooled into thinking this is the greatest reward for us? Moses looked for a greater reward. And so did all those who are in the hall of faith. And that's why they made what seems to us like insane, ludicrous, crazy decisions. Why would you choose persecution and the suffering that the Hebrews experienced rather than the riches, the treasures of Egypt, the glory of Egypt? Why would you choose the life of the Hebrews. And it's because he wasn't looking at the rewards that were right in front of his eyes that, were so plain, that seemed so plain to see. He was looking beyond to a greater reward. With faith, he fixed his eyes on his prize, his reward. He fixed his eyes on Christ. He ran the course, and as we know, he finished the race. So chapter 12 begins by shifting the role of these faith heroes like Moses. And in chapter 11, they're the heroes of the faith that we look to as examples of faith for us. They inspire us. They model for us how we ought to run. They are the great cloud of witnesses now. Who are in the stands. And they are cheering for us who are running the course. They're cheering us on to run our race well, that we too might join them in the hall of faith. So Hebrews 12 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight or encumbrance and sin which clings so closely or entangles us or hinders us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, with the heroes of the past cheering us on, we must run with endurance. What does it mean to run with endurance? It means to run without stopping, without quitting, without giving up. Let me give you an example. You know, the marathon is 26.2 miles. You know, when I get up in the morning and I look at my calendar, I know I have an appointment that's 26.2 miles away. 26 miles away, I, I kind of go, oh, driving through traffic in Chicago, 26 miles, that might as well be on the other side of the state. And you know what I'm talking about. But to run... 
26.2 miles. You know, in 2018, in the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, 155 men started the race. And only 140 of them finished the race. Almost one out of ten racers who started the race couldn't even finish it. And this is a race that they've been preparing for for at least all of their adult lives. Maybe some of these have been running since they were children preparing for this opportunity. And one out of ten of them could not finish the race. Instead of having a ranking next to their name forever, you can look it up yourself, it'll say DNF, did not finish. Thirty-nine people will have DNF next to their name. Well, that includes the 157 women who started the race, and only 133 of the women finished themselves. So these men and women, you know, they're not people that the, the race organizers said, you know, gosh, we've got to fill the roster. Let's just grab whoever we can get and get them into the race. No, these are expert marathoners. These are professional runners. And they could not finish the race. The Olympic Creed says the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not to triumph, but to struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. That's in the Olympic Creed. Hear it again, just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle, the essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. I suspect that by saying the essential thing is not to have conquered, that they really mean it's not about winning. That's not everything. The point of the Olympics is not to win. Winning's not everything. But that the essential thing is how you run. It's that you compete. That you're competitive. And I would add that you're competing. You're competitive. That you're running until the race is over. You go until the end until it's finished. And we must run hard until the race is finished. That's endurance. While most of us will never run a marathon for fun or competition, like it or not, we must all run the race of life. Everyone is already in that race. The starting line is behind us, my friends. You might, maybe now is the first time someone's telling you, you're in a race. But see, winning is not coming in first. Winning is finishing. Winning is finishing. What does it look like for us to run like the heroes that, we, that now cheer for us? Three things. We must strip off every encumbrance. You know, if you notice how athletes dress when they compete, you notice that you know, you don't find um, people running in three-piece suits, 
carrying their briefcase, dragging along the kids and their friends with the fishing rod in one hand, you know, the golf cart, you know, the golf, I don't know what they call it, that golf thing you pull. I don't play golf, sorry. You know, they're wearing the thinnest fabric they can find, right? Some of them look like they're this close to being naked when they're running. Why? Because not only do we need to invest towards a prize, we also need to divest. We need to let go of things that don't contribute to the race. And i got to ask you, and I hope you're asking yourself, what are some of those things that I hang on to that don't contribute to me finishing this race? Hmm. Let me give you a few seconds to think about that. What are things that are slowing you down? What are things that are unnecessarily wearing you out? And maybe it's not just things. Maybe it's people. There are certain people that contribute nothing to my pursuit of the most important things. They only distract me. We must strip off every encumbrance. Every good runner strips off everything that's unnecessary. Indeed, the Bible talks about how we need to put on, right? Put on the armor of God. Right? We ought to have the fruit of the Spirit. But we also must let go of those things that are an, an encumbrance to us. Those things like sin that entangle us. Anything that weighs us down. And I do believe the more precious and valuable the prize is to us, the more it means to us, the more we're willing to invest, but the more we're also willing to divest. We also must turn from the sin, as we said. What is the sin? In the context of these two chapters, chapter 11 and 12, I am absolutely convinced there is a specific sin that the writer of Hebrews is identifying. And you know what it is? It's faithlessness. It's unfaithfulness. And think about it in this context, in the context of salvation itself. What is necessary for salvation? We have to have faith in Jesus Christ. We have to believe. We have to trust him, right? I mean, that's one of the things that the New Testament makes so abundantly clear. We're not saved because we were good enough. We're saved because Jesus is good enough. And we put our hope in him. He did it already. He's finished, right? That's what he said on the cross. On the cross, tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. We don't have to add anything to that. We have to believe him. But let's never be fooled into thinking or believing that other lie, which is because Jesus did it all, we don't have to do anything. 
Because what we see, we see this pattern in all the New Testament writers. And it's like, you were this way before Jesus. These were the things that you used to do. But now you know Jesus. So let's do this. Let's live like this. Let's put, put away the things that were destroying us and let's pursue the things that give us life. Let's put away wickedness and put on goodness. Let's put away unholiness and let's put on holiness. Let's take away unrighteousness and let's be slaves to righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ does not mean he did it all so we do nothing. It really means he did it all and because he did it all, he can do it all in us too. Right? So we have to turn from our sin. We have to repent from unfaithfulness. Having no faith, living without faith, having, having faith, yet living as if we have no faith. Let's put that all aside. Faithlessness and unfaithful, faithful, faithlessness and unfaithfulness, it, it distracts us, it diverts us, it hampers, it inhibits, it entangles and it prevents us it prevents us from running the race that's set before us. So let's put our faith in Jesus. Let's trust him. Let's run in a manner that is con consistent with our convictions. We must run in a, manner that, in a manner that matches up, that measures up. We must run in a manner that is consistent with what we believe. You know, I'm on Park Community Church. We must run with faith. Amen? Amen? We must teach our men, our women, and our children to run with faith. We must teach them to run in a manner that is consistent with what we believe. And then we must run with endurance. And that's the steadfastness, the perseverance, the course, my friends, is long. It's long. It's not a long jump. It's not a high jump. It's not a hundred meter dash. It's not even one mile. It is a marathon. It's a marathon. As I said, one out of ten marathoners don't even finish the race. And the marathon is an interesting race, too, in that it's one of those few events that doesn't happen in a controlled space. It doesn't happen on a track. I mean, a very short part of it, about, you know, depending on, you know, the particular race, maybe 2 to 5% of the race is run on a track. The rest of it is a road race. And that road's not flat either. That means all the cracks that are on the road are there for the runner too. All the potholes are there. I'm sure they try to choose sections that don't have huge potholes. It goes up, it goes down, it goes left, it goes right. It's a road race. It happens in the real world. 
not on a controlled track. My brothers and sisters, the race that we live as Christians is not happening in a test tube, in a laboratory. It's happening in real life. Life is happening while we're running this race. And you know what's also interesting about a marathon? Where, you know, in most other events, you know that the spectators are far from the track. They're far from the court. They're kept behind something, right? A barrier. You know, a marathon, if you've ever watched one, the racers are literally within arm's reach of the spectators. And it's actually even happened where a crazy spectator has run onto the course and literally tackled a racer. Things like that happen. And things like that happen in our lives. Sometimes we make a left turn when we should have made a right. We start going up rather than down. We hit a pothole. We twist our ankle. But we must run with endurance. So you see, faith and endurance are critical for excellent running. However, while faith and endurance are critical for excellent running, even excellent running is only jogging. If it doesn't have a purpose, if it doesn't have a finish line, it's ultimately pointless. Paul says like, it's like beating the air unless it's done with a purpose, something meaningful. So we must run with a gross fixation upon the prize. Nobody starts a race not knowing where the finish line is. That becomes a fool's errand. So how do we do it? How do we fixate upon the prize? And I say the first thing we need to do is look at Jesus himself. Because he is not only our model... He is the prize. Hebrews 12, 2 through 3, looking, fixing our eyes to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In chapter 11, the author of Hebrews held up the exemplary lives of Old Testament saints. Now he holds up Jesus himself as our most excellent example. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the example of excellence and faithfulness. Jesus demonstrated his faithfulness throughout his earthly ministry. He lived the perfect life in perfect obedience. And you remember what he said, right? I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what he tells me to say. I'm on mission. I've been sent, even as I send you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faithfully accepted the will of his Father taking the cup that was given to him. He was then arrested, beaten, mocked, crucified, and yet he remained faithful on the course to the cross. To accept death by crucifixion, it's like fishing the very 
bottom of the barrel of despair and disgrace. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. And the Romans only reserved it for a special group of people. Enemies of the state. Even a Roman citizen was exempt from being crucified because it was so disgraceful that it would look badly upon the Roman people who touted themselves as the most civilized in all the world. They would not even crucify one of their own. And yet this is what Jesus fixated himself on. And he did not leave the corpse. He made a beeline for the cross. What if Jesus had called down those 12 legions of angels? They were at his disposal. What if he had called them down for his rescue? Lost in our sin and doomed to eternal destruction, we could not call Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. We could not call him Lord and Savior. We could not say that he was faithful to the very end. We could not say that he is our example, our model of obedience par excellence. We could not say those things. Now consider Christ's endurance so that we might also endure. Looking, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How did Jesus despise the shame and endure? How did he do it? He fixed his sights on the joy set before him. I mean, don't we do that all the time ourselves? I mean, do we have any people here who play sports competitively? We have no athletes in this room. I played football in high school. You know, what drove me to play football wasn't like winning the conference title for our team. It was, man, I just wanted to play on Friday night because I was a second stringer. I practiced hard because in the hope that one day the coach would say, like, John, you're going to start this week. Never happened, by the way. But that's what drove me. That was the joy set before me that one day I get to run th onto the field with the starting team. And for those of you who are students and you're wondering, like, what is the point of all this studying? The daily grind. Internet school. What is the point of it? And then we think of graduation. We think of report card day. We think of perhaps one day we want to go to college or we have other dreams. And it requires us to endure now, to fixate now on the prize. And that draws us. It pulls us calls us to keep going. And how about for moms and dads? You may not believe this, kids. We don't all love our jobs. But why do we get up every morning? And why do we do it every day? Is it because 
Dad wants a new set of golf clubs. Mom wants a new handbag. Is that why? It's for you. They go every day because it's for you. They have to put food on the table, and they have to put a roof over their head, and they, you know, maybe sometimes some of our dads and moms complain a little bit, but that's the joy set before us. You are the joy that is set before us. And we'll do whatever it takes to make sure you're taken care of. Jesus fixated on the joy that was set before him. And it was, it was such a joy that he was able to overlook something as awful, as horrible as the cross. As the cross. He was able to look past the cross, look through the cross, and see what was on the other side, because what was on the other side was so glorious that even the cross paled in comparison. It was totally worth it. And what was on the other side? It was his Father's approval. It was our salvation. His triumphant resurrection that he be vindicated in front of all of his enemies. That he be glorified in the world, the earth would be his footstool. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he would secure the salvation of every saint, his church. Jesus' faithfulness and endurance validates him as the author, the founder, the one who started it all, but also the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. You know, Jesus didn't, um, you know, he said, I didn't come to abolish the laws. I didn't come to cancel them or destroy them. He said, but to fulfill them, right? His life was perfectly consistent with his faith, his mission. God sent me. The Father sent me. I say what the Father says for me to say, and I do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus' faith in his Father's plan was perfect. Not as I will, he said, but as you will. Jesus' faith in the Father to do right by him was perfect. And he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we must place our faith not in our own ability to be faithful because I hate to break it to you folks. It's not within us to be faithful. We are unfaithful. So don't trust your ability to be faithful. No, even there we trust the ability of Jesus to be faithful. And that he's going to work that out in us. That he's the one who makes us faithful. Because he is a prize so great that as we keep beholding him, as we keep going deeper into him, the prize will be 
so great that all the distractions will start to fall away. We'll, we'll find fewer and fewer distractions, fewer and fewer things vying for our attention, trying to gain our commitments, divide our hearts, and we'll find there is no other who is worthy. There is no other prize greater than Jesus. No other. You know, when I was in college, you're going to find it hard to believe looking at a guy like me, but I was a terrible student. I was. In high school, I was a terrible student, too. It was a miracle I even went to college. And, you know, I know why it was that I had such a hard time being a good student. It's because I had so many distractions. And even when I knew what I did want, what I wanted was not worthy of my undivided attention. You know, I was a pre-med student, and you know what I would do whenever I didn't feel like studying? I would get in my car. I was at UIC at the time. I would get in my car. I would drive up to the North Shore. You know, I grew up in the North Shore in Skokie, which is like the bottom of the barrel of the, lo- of the North Shore, barely the North Shore. But I would drive farther north, up Sheridan Road, past, past Northwestern University, and I would drive past all these humongous, luxurious estates, and that, I hoped, would motivate me to study. That one day, perhaps, I could live in a house like that. But it didn't work. Because that even was not worthy of my undivided attention. That was not worthy of my faith. But people have asked me, how is it that, you know, when you, when God called you and you answered your call to ministry, how is it that you became such a good student? What drove you, not just for good grades, but to really learn, to really try to master these things that are being taught to you? And it's because the subject matter was Jesus. And he deserved to have no competitors, no distractions. He was worth having at any price. Time, talents, treasures, he deserved it all. My friends, I urge you, if you haven't already, taste and see how good Jesus is rediscover or discover for the first time that he is worthy of your life. He deserves it all. And there is no one better to entrust your life to than him. He will not fail you. He's not going to let you down. He won't drop you. And he will fulfill his word to the utmost. He will not disappoint you. The race of life is won by those who run by faith, whose assurance and conviction converge on the prize, whose eyes are fixed by faith on Jesus, who endured by faith in his Father, who enjoyed God's approval by faith with Jesus, 
These are those who run the race of life well and successfully. To know Jesus, to persevere with Jesus, and to stand in God's approval with Jesus. What is the prize? It, I mean, is it not that one day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say to us, the only one that will matter, it won't matter whose opinion, but his will matter. And when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Is that not what we all want to hear? If we get anything else, it will be a disappointment. Because what he says matters. We may each cross the finish line under different circumstances. Some of us are going to blaze across the line in a you know, furious uh, sprint. Some of us are just going to drag across because you know, we're just you know, so spent. Every last ounce of energy. Some of us are going to be bloodied and beaten and barely cross on our hands and knees. But it doesn't matter how we cross that line if we hear God's approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you have set your son before us and you invite us to fix our eyes upon him to behold him, to gaze upon him, to take him all in. Your son, God in the flesh. Thank you that you have looked upon sinners like ourselves. Unworthy men and women, and children like ourselves. And you have said, come. Come. Be my children. Be my friends. Be my servants. Lord, we hear your invitation, and we are reminded of your invitation too. And for those of us who have put it on the shelf and forgotten about it, we, we say, sorry, God. Forgive us. We have taken our eyes off of Jesus and fixed them on something else that doesn't deserve our gaze. Lord, would you redirect our attention to the one who is supreme above all, who is excellent above all, who is worthy above all. Would you fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Lord, we love him. And we want to love him more. We pursue him. And we want to pursue him better. And God, we want to live our lives. We want to run this race in a manner that is consistent with our convictions, with our faith. Let it not just be something we say with our lips, but Lord, it would be something that just comes out of our pores by the way that we live. That we believe in Jesus. 
And Father, for those of us who have never made that decision to trust Jesus, Lord, why not today? What's holding us back from trusting you today? Have you not shown yourself to be matchless, incomparable, that there really is no other like you? There's no one who deserves all that we can offer. Lord, we lay our lives down before you. And you promise to give us life, a new life. You promise to make the old new. You promise us the forgiveness of our sins to declare us righteous and holy. God, we accept your offer and we believe in Jesus. Help us now to live in a manner that is worthy of this gospel. And we pray in the excellent, powerful, good, strong name of Jesus. Amen.